Hi, Alison. Hey, Sarah. Well, here we are, down to the last few days before the first round of the presidential elections. Uh, that's happening on Sunday, so just three days from when we're recording the show. Yeah, yeah, and it's probably worth a bit of a rundown what's going on. So there are 11 candidates running against the incumbent, Emmanuel Macron. The two who come out on top will head into the second round runoff two weeks later on April 24th. Now, we've talked about how this has been a bit of a lackluster campaign up mm -hmm. till now. First of all, because of the COVID pandemic, which made it harder to get close to the people. Yeah, and then Macron got mobilized around the Ukraine war and was late to declare his presidency. And when he did so a couple of weeks ago, the other candidates felt like he had an unfair advantage as a wartime president. There have been no face-to-face -face debates with Macron and the other candidates. Yeah, the president is too busy. <laughs> Indeed, but there have been interviews and, of course, rallies. Macron held a big campaign rally in Paris uh, last weekend uh, with a bit of a rock star format. 30,000 people gathered in La Défense Arena, that's uh, Europe's largest indoor stadium. Mm. He made up for a bit of lost time. He gave a two and a half hour speech. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the main takeaways was that he tried to win back some of the center left who, you remember, helped him to get elected back in 2017. But he's lost a lot of that support because, well, he's done a bit more for the business-friendly right than he has for the left. So now he's promising lots of stuff, more hiring of teachers, more nurses, some salary increases. Yeah, but will it be enough to win back support from the left? Macron is still ahead in the polls, but far-right Marine Le Pen is closing in on him. And hard-left Jean-Luc Mélenchon is polling now in third place. He's ahead of the traditional right-wing The Republicans candidate Valérie Pécresse. Now, Mélenchon has run a successful campaign, especially on social media. Mm. Um, at 70, he's the oldest candidate in the running, but he's pretty much been pretty good about using tech. He's made effective use of 3D holograms of himself to multiply his presence, that kind of thing. Yeah, and his anti-globalization program, while it uses the slogan, Another World is Possible, seems to be quite popular with younger voters. Uh, he is strong on ecology, he promises to up the minimum wage, keep the retirement age down, and of course tax the rich. <laughs> yeah, so things that Macron is not doing. Um, if he can get the working class out to vote, he could potentially upset the apple cart, as it were, but so much of this will depend on turnout. And that has been steadily going down over the years. And it's quite variable depending on the election, as we'll talk about a bit later in the podcast. So those are the candidates, Sarah. But what are the main issues, you may ask, in this election? Hmm. Well, you'd think, what, healthcare, unemployment, maybe climate change? Yeah, you'd think, wouldn't you? But the one issue all the candidates are talking about is cost of living or spending power. Ah. Le pouvoir d'achat, as they say in France. Right. Inflation is running high at uh, around 4%. And... Prices of food are going through the roof, uh, petrol, energy uh, prices are going up. It's all very tangible for everyone. And the war in Ukraine is making things worse, pushing up petrol and energy prices. 
People are now worried they won't be able to heat their homes next winter or run their cars. So candidates are desperate to show that they will put money back in people's pockets. Macron's already said if he's re-elected, he'll index pensions to inflation. His main rival, Marine Le Pen, has promised to lift VAT on some basic necessities, including food. The government has already capped the price of gas for a few months, and it's just not 15 cents off a litre of petrol. And Macron, of course, knows only too well how angry people can get over fuel hikes. Yeah, he does. His attempts to introduce a tax on diesel, you'll remember back in the autumn of 2018, sparked the so-called yellow vest or gilet jaune protest Mm -hmm. movement, yeah. And it really rocked the first half of his term. For 60 consecutive weeks, working people, mainly from small towns, went out on the streets every Saturday to protest over the cost of living and social injustice. It ended up being a revolt against against Macron and the government itself. Uh, The protesters saw him as, well, autocratic and very out of touch with the people. The protests in big cities like Paris often ended in violence. Yeah, the protest movement very much turned against Macron. They really wanted to get rid of him. Yeah, that didn't happen, of course. The government threw big money at the problem. It abandoned the fuel tax. It raised minimum pensions. It organized a series of debates all over the country to hear about people's grievances. Yeah, the grand débat. Mm -hmm. But then the COVID lockdown, March 2020, it more or less put an end to the movement. But it didn't kill it altogether, Mm. and there is still a yellow vest spirit. And some militants see these elections as a way of finishing the job, if you like, getting rid of Macron through the ballot box. At least that's the view of two women yellow vest activists I spoke to, Agnès and Nathalie. They feature in a recent documentary film called En Peuple. The filmmaker Emmanuel Grasse spent six months at the height of the yellow vest movement following them and other activists in the small town of Chartres. That's about 100 kilometers southwest of Paris. And the film shows the daily life of the movement, people on roundabouts, on tolls, on the demos, of course. But it also shows that the movement was much more than just the violent protests. So I wanted to hear how Natalie and Agnes's lives had been impacted by the movement and whether they were ready to take up the fight again. It turns out they've never stopped fighting. Agnes, And yes, serves herself in the fridge. She's at ease in Natalie's home. This is a modest flat on a housing estate in the town of Luison, population 6,000, about four kilometres from Chartres. (laughs) We sit down at the living room table with a drink. Agnès shows me a photo. This is a photo of the roundabout in Chartres in November 2018. There's Nathalie, Didier, and all the yellow vests from Chartres. It's thanks to the roundabout that we became friends. The two women soon realized they had a lot in common. And it wasn't just about needing a car to survive in areas like this where services are closing and public transport is limited. Natalie, a divorced mother of two, was struggling financially on 1,100 euros a month. She'd also become a carer for her sister, who'd been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, but who couldn't manage on the poor invalidity benefits she got. If it had only been the fuel tax, I wouldn't have protested. But for me, it was about spending power and the health system. What happened to my sister was unjust. She'd worked for years, up to 17 hours a day. 
And then when she became disabled, suddenly she was worth nothing. That's how she felt. And I was no longer her sister. I became her carer. It's tough, emotionally, physically. That's really what got me into the movement. Agnès, also divorced with a disabled child, had slipped into debt. When I got into financial straits, the state didn't help me, food banks did. I felt very ashamed at the time, but now I don't. Because on 17 November, when I went to the roundabout, I realized there were thousands of people like me. The roundabout was the Yellow Vest HQ, where members met, discussed strategies and planned their actions. Those early months in the winter of 2018 were cold and noisy, but there was a spirit of solidarity that carried them along. There were probably even more women than men on the roundabout in Chartres. Lots of divorced women with children, pensioners who had the time to come and help. For example, Marie, she's retired. She came every day with coffee and biscuits. We had to make sure there was always at least one person on the roundabout so we could keep control. Otherwise, the police would take it back from us. I guess women are more used to shopping, so we were more aware of the prices going up, that we had less spending power. My partner Didier says women are tougher, that we refuse to give up. I think whatever women have achieved, they've had to fight for it. I think as women, we also felt we had to protect our children. When we saw we couldn't make ends meet, couldn't fill up the fridge for our kids, it made us even more determined. Anger was also fueled by the way the Yellow Vest felt the government, and Macron in particular, was portraying the movement. I am so angry. Angry with all these politicians who've dragged us through the mud, demeaned us, who look down on us. We're kind of subhuman for them. The anger fueled the movement and the protests. Neither Natalie nor Agnès had experience of big demos. Joining the Paris marches was an awakening. In fact, it was a nightmare. On the first demo in Paris, it felt like I was in another world. All the explosions, it was terrifying. And then when the repression got worse, well, it marks you for life. I can't even stand being near the slightest firecracker now. Voilà, je, je supporte plus ça. My first demo in Paris was on December 1st. I just went along thinking I'd show I was unhappy with the government. But I got trapped on the Champs-Élysées. There was tear gas everywhere. The riot police blocked all the exits. I tried taking off my yellow vest and passing myself off as a Parisian who'd got lost, but it didn't work. 
I was stuck in tear gas for six hours. I've never known such violence. On se prend une, un coup de violence euh, énorme. The women admit the movement didn't achieve much in concrete terms. The government launched a so-called great debate to which they weren't invited and rolled out Macron bonuses, allowing companies to give bonuses of up to 2,000 euros to their employees, free of social charges. But these women haven't seen much of it. I got six euros fifty-seven. That's what I got thanks to Macron. It's a total piss take. To cushion the spike in petrol prices, the government recently cut 15 cents off the price of a litre of petrol. Derisory, says Agnès. Didier just filled up the tank and it cost 103 euros, up from 70 euros a while ago. So I'm 33 euros worse off. She takes out a calculator to work out what difference the 15 cents fuel reduction means for her. Let's see, that makes 7 euros 50. Seriously. We're sick of being handed crumbs like this. 15 cents off petrol, 50 euros here and there for energy or whatever. They're throwing us peanuts to keep us from taking to the streets. And at the same time, you've got all this corruption, tax evasion, GAFA not paying tax, fraud, and conflict of interest in politics. They do nothing about that. It drives me crazy. Despite the deep resentment, Natalie and Agnès say they will vote in the presidential elections. I will vote to stop Macron getting re-elected. I'll vote against Macron. It's important to vote because women had to fight hard to have the right to vote. So even if it's just for that reason, I'll vote. While Agnès isn't voting Macron, she admits she owes him something. We didn't get liberty, we didn't get equality, but we discovered fraternity through the yellow vests. People are no longer just looking out for themselves. Being part of the yellow vest movement has also made these women far more politically aware. They set up an online platform called Objectif RIC, the Citizens' Referendum Initiative, to promote a form of direct democracy and keep the powers in check. It's the very opposite of what Emmanuel Macron is doing, says Agnès. He makes decisions all by himself and imposes them on the people. We want the people to decide for themselves and impose rules on the government. So it's the opposite of what the government is doing. I thank Macron for that. His disdain for the yellow vests, his inability to listen, everything he said about us has made me more political, forced me to improve my knowledge of politics. I've pushed my limits. I never would have thought back on 17 November 2018 that I'd be capable of so much. So these women say they're going to vote. <laughs> Any sense of how? Well, they wouldn't say, uh, just mm. that it would be against Macron and not for the far right. Interesting. And, and what if Macron 
is re-elected, which is a likely possibility. Well, it depends on the margin. If it's very slim, like it was last time, then the women think it could ignite a new wave of protest. They are certainly willing to get back onto the streets, not necessarily wearing a yellow vest, but as uh, fully paid up French citizens with, you know, this determination to make the voice of the little people heard. Yeah, huh. And are there any signs that the Yellow Vest movement is taking off again? I mean, I'm thinking about all these protests in the last few months against the um, COVID vaccine pass. And there were a lot of Yellow Vests in those demonstrations. Yeah, there were. But Natalie Ananias told me that the anti-pass demonstrators were on the whole leaning on the Yellow Vests because they had a lot more knowledge of how to run a movement, how to organize demos and how to deal with the police and police violence and so on. So there was more coordination coordination between them, but the yellow vests weren't necessarily at the forefront of that. Mm. More recently, there was the anti-pass convoy that was inspired by what was happening in Canada. And even if it was short-lived, that did bring thousands of yellow vests onto the streets. Mm. Um, and there are, Sarah, reports now of a few roundabouts in France being occupied again. So the embers are definitely there. Now we just have to see what the 24th of April brings. Depuis longtemps, je n'ai personne qui m'attend. Tous mes amours sont des passants. Pour m'en aller, il me suffit d'un mot. So now to something a bit different. Back to 1946, on the 13th of April, so 76 years ago this week, France closed its brothels, all 1,400 of them, 180 in Paris. And all this thanks to a woman named Marthe Richard. So she was a World War I spy, right? Yeah. And she knew Matahari, mm -hmm. who we've talked about in a previous podcast, episode 40. Yeah, um, Marthe Richard had a very colorful life. And it was only when she was older that she turned to politics and then turned to uh, getting rid of the brothels. So she was born Marthe Bettenfeld on August 15th, 1889, into a very poor family. She started as a tailor's assistant, but then fell in love with a man who turned out to be a pimp. And he pushed her into prostitution when she was just 16. She worked in a brothel near a military base in Nancy in the east of France. And at the time, brothels were legal, weren't they? And they were policed to make sure that prostitutes didn't pass on uh, diseases such as syphilis. And Marthe did get syphilis and was mm. accused of giving it to a soldier and was chased out of town, essentially. She ended up in Paris, where she entered a higher-class brothel. There she met her future husband, Henri Richer, who was a wealthy merchant. So this uh, rich client, he was he was willing to overlook the past, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, and he opened up the world of the bourgeoisie to his wife. She turned away from her humble origins. She never really looked back. Richer introduced his wife to flying. He had an airplane. Marthe became the sixth French woman to get her pilot's license. And in 1913, she claimed to have broken the record for a woman flying from Le Crotois to Zurich. This turns out to have been one of the many embellishments of the truth in her life. She actually only flew the plane to Burgundy. There it was put on a train to the countryside outside of Zurich, and then she flew the plane to Zurich itself. But the record held. At the start of World War I, Matriche wanted to fly planes for France. Which wasn't easy for a woman at the time. No, no, and pretty much impossible. She was rebuffed. Um, her husband was killed in the war in 1916. She redoubled her efforts to get involved. She spent time around the air bases. She got involved with a lover who then recruited her for the intelligence services. She claims to have been the first spy taken in by Captain Georges Ladoux, who was the head of France's counterintelligence service. 
who later recruited Matahari. Yep, yeah, they actually knew each other. Richier, whose codename was Alouette, or mm. Lark, was instructed to get close to Hans von Kron, who's the naval attaché of the German Navy in Madrid. Here she is in a 1974 interview, looking back on the experience. When I was in relation with the Baron von Kron, I decided to when I got into the relationship with Baron von Kron, I had already decided to betray him, she says. He had a lot of trust in me. And then when asked if she fell in love with him, she said no, because she had just lost her husband in the war. Getting involved with von Kron was a form of revenge, she says. So how successful was she then as a spy? Well, the mission ended badly. She was actually denounced. Um, she had to leave Madrid quickly without support. She was never officially recognized by France as a spy. Later, Ladoux, her handler, published a fictionalized memoir. That was in 1930. And in one section, he raised questions about the role of a French spy that he called Marthe Richard. It was mostly an invention, but Marthe Richer claimed half of the book's vast royalties. She then adopted the name Marthe Richard mm -hmm. and wrote her own memoir to set the record straight. My Life as a Spy in the French Service became a bestseller. It was adapted into a film in 1937. During World War II, she again offered her services to the French resistance. And after the liberation of Paris, known as the heroine of two wars, Richard went into politics. She was elected to the local council of Paris's fourth arrondissement, and she took on the mission of closing brothels. Now, brothels were considered to have been a key part of intelligence gathering, right, during the occupation of France by Nazi forces under the Vichy regime. Yeah, and then there were horrendous stories of women being bought and sold like cattle between brothels. But there was resistance to closing them, not the least of which because politicians regularly visited a handful of high-end brothels. So not much political will then to get rid of them. <laughs> no, no. But Richard managed to get a ban passed locally, and she began a national campaign. She addressed Parliament in 1945, saying it's time to fight against the commercial exploitation of prostitution. Women are not slaves, she said. And she knew this firsthand, of course, given her experiences as a prostitute, uh, as a teenager. Yeah, though interestingly, at the time when she was fighting this, her past as a prostitute wasn't known publicly. It was actually her opponents who dug it up to try to undermine her work. MPs did end up passing the law. They banned brothels on the 9th of April, 1946. Today, the law is known as the Loi Marthe Richard, named after her. And four days later, on April 13th, the prostitution registry was destroyed and France's brothels were officially closed. But prostitution remained legal. Yep, yep. Prostitutes moved onto the streets mm. or into hotels that were set up in the former brothels. And in fact, Richard later reversed her position. She said she regretted that women were now working without support or supervision. She called for prostitutes to organize themselves, have their work be properly recognized, practiced in the open to allow women to find their dignity, as she put it. No one listened. Here she is in a TV program in 1973, still supporting calls to reopen brothels or at least form a prostitution union. Puisqu'on ne peut pas empêcher la prostitution, elle existe depuis tout le temps. Alors, mettons pour le moins le moindre mal. Prostitution has always existed, she says, so let's focus on what does the least harm. Brothels are better than having women standing at the entrance to hotels and on the streets. I like the fact that she was capable to admit. You know, she changed her mind. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, brothels never did reopen, did they, Sarah? No, no, and prostitution remains legal in France today. Then there have been new laws against pimping, which is considered any help given to prostitutes. And it's a debate that continues to rage.
So now back to the presidential election campaign. Yeah, we just can't escape it. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Now, for all the politics and the promises, the key to this election, as we said, will be turnout. Mm. And that has been steadily decreasing in France over the last several election cycles. Now, it's worth mentioning that France tends to talk in terms of abstention rates rather than turnout. So Mm -hmm. we talk about those who do not come out to vote. Yeah, and abstention rates have been on the increase. So there was a 22% abstention. So those not voting in the first round of the last presidential election in 2017, this compared to 16 percent just a decade earlier. And this matters because those who don't vote, the abstainers, tend to be younger, poorer people, and then they end up not being represented when it comes to elected officials. So we're increasing inequality here. Hmm. So what is going on? What's the explanation? Well, what's interesting to note is that while abstention is on the rise, it does vary depending on the election and the issue being voted on. So in the 1960s, people voted in every election no matter what. Today, it depends. Presidential elections do get the highest turnout, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And when you look at legislative elections, which are usually held a month and a half later, it's dramatically different. So if you look at the first round of the 2017 legislative election, you had only 49% turnout. 51% abstention. Again, comparing this to 22% abstention for the presidentials. This variability shows that voting is no longer seen as a duty, maybe no longer seen as useful for certain things. At least that's how Vincent Tiberi sees it. He's a professor of political science at Sciences Po Bordeaux. He just put out a book of essays about voting behaviors in France called Extinction de Vote, Vote Extinction, looking at the phenomenon. I talked to him about how voting has changed drastically in France over the last couple of generations. We used to have a major voting culture, which was a a duty-based vote. So the um, duty-based vote was a vote that you cast because this is a duty towards the society, because people have fought for uh, defending this right. And so whatever the question, you show up at the voting station. And this culture of voting does not mean that voting was a strong sense of values, etc. That was a duty that was also very uh, close to this idea of a vertical democracy where the president, the big boys were deciding instead of the citizens. So you say, basically, I'm going to put my trust in these elected officials. They're going to run things. The agreement we have is I'll go vote and they do the work of governing. But you're saying that today that's breaking down. Uh, Yeah, uh, well, this culture is uh, still very strong among people born before the Second World War. And this uh, culture is less and less frequent, has almost disappeared in the new generation, people born uh, after the baby boom or uh, the millennials. Citizens don't believe both at this idea of vote as a duty, but also that uh, politicians are uh, the people who know better. The idea that, like, actually, we, the people, need to be much more involved and we shouldn't just leave it to the politicians. Exactly. And this is not typically French, actually. We see this kind of uh, changing culture uh, in other countries. Now, citizens are challenging elites and no more obey to their electoral proclamations. We've definitely seen that here in France with the Yellow Vest movement. That was sort of their entire thing. The elites are running things and we're not involved. How do you see that movement sort of affecting the way people are involved in in voting? The Yellow Vest movement is very interesting because this is not ordinary um, protest citizens. They come from the middle class, they come from uh, remote cities or remote areas. They are not well organized. But this kind of thinking 
was already present in other social movements after the 2008 uh, economical crisis, where people are less and less uh, connected to uh, official organizations and more and more uh, using uh, personal networks, citizen networks, etc., etc. What I think is interesting, though, is is looking at like the history of voting in France. You know, which voting comes out of the revolution, and one of the authors in your book writes, you know, sort of a way of replacing other more violent ways, let's say, of participating, like revolts and uprising, and replacing it with this symbolic act of participation. And I'm wondering today now if we're getting to the point where voting is almost too peaceful, right? People are looking for more passion or some some way of getting more directly involved in, in a way that like voting initially was meant to replace. Voting is usually seen as the legitimate way to express yourself. But if you look at the historical construction, you see that uh, voting was not considered as a true uh, democratic way of bringing citizens uh, with politics. When you look at the Second French Republic and the Third French Republic, you see that actually it has been a process of socialization to force people to leave aside other way of expressing yourself. You force citizens to only being voters. And by doing so, you put the elected official at the center of politics and no more the citizen. But so I wonder, going back to this idea of, of abstention and low turnout, I mean, so there's a lot of hand-wringing that says, ooh, you know, this is a breakdown in democracy, you know, and even as you said, means that a very smaller segment of the population is actually represented when they actually go vote. But the way you're talking about it, it's not necessarily that. It's also showing that people want different forms of civic engagement. Usually, uh, abstainers are seen as to be uh, uncivic, seen as to be egoist or not being uh, committed to the rest of the society. This is clearly untrue. And uh, probably a lot of abstainers are actually citizens who participate in the collective life using other ways and probably better ways of expressing themselves. They they probably think that, uh, you know, participating in a community organization is much more efficient when you want to be a citizen. Uh, Protesting, uh, signing petition is much more efficient. Boycotting is also very efficient. So their citizenship does not go anymore only through the vote. Furthermore, the vote in France is also a synonym for uh, electing people. Electing is supporting. And when you remember what happened in 2017, most of the French voters who chose Emmanuel Macron was not because they agree with Emmanuel Macron, but because they were against Marine Le Pen. Right, because in the second round in that election, we had Macron coming in against Le Pen. There's this idea of blocking the far right from taking power. It wasn't necessarily a vote for Macron. And and when you do that, when you force people to choose by the lesser of two evils, it causes a strong stress to the utility of voting. Are we going to see the same thing again this year? Is it another blow to the utility of voting? That will be worse if we uh, follow what's going on in the opinion polls. Almost half of the Mélenchon voters don't want to choose between Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. Mélenchon is the hard left. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's also polling pretty high, but won't make it in the second round if things go according to the polls. And so what do his electors do? Yes, and uh, to vote for Emmanuel Macron in 2017, where he has no balance sheets, when he was uh, new uh, in politics, than today, where actually you can judge him by his deeds, by what uh, what he has done during the five years, his first mandate. 
I don't think that this presidential campaign was enough for solving these democracy challenges. And clearly, if we don't address it in the future, it will end up with a lower and lower number of citizens voting in the voting booth. But also, you will see that this is only the rich and the old who will vote. And so they will decide for the rest of the population. But the rest of the population will probably not accept what's going on. So Yellow Vest Movement, that was a legitimacy crisis. And if you remember also the 2017 second round, uh, when you put together abstention and blank votes, uh, plus a vote for Marine Le Pen, Emmanuel Macron only received uh, 43% of the vote of the French electorate. That will probably be even more the case uh, next time. And so can you govern and uh, have a legitimacy when you have this kind of forced choice? So this forced choice, as he says, is likely to happen again if you believe the polls, though, of course, anything could happen. Yeah, look for election coverage on our website, rfienglish.com, and we'll give you the scoop on the entre-deux-tours, the two weeks between the first and second rounds, in our next episode. And that's it for the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Nicolas Doro. And if you want to get in touch, do send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You'll also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, April the 21st. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.